0: Welcome to Mysteries, Myths, and More. I'm your narrator, Joyce Keller Walsh. My intention is to use this podcast to tell a story each month, sometimes fiction, sometimes not, that I hope you'll find interesting, engaging, and provocative. As of this writing, the United States is in enormous upheaval. We are in the middle of a pandemic, with the greatest number of COVID-19 cases and deaths in the world, although Brazil, unfortunately, is becoming a close second. We have more than 40 million workers currently unemployed or furloughed due to the closing down of businesses because of the virus. And as of this past week, we have had demonstrations against the unforgivable killing of an African-American man, George Floyd, by a white police officer in Minneapolis, Minnesota. There have been daily protests across America. In these turbulent times, it seems unworthy to do a non-political podcast. Yet it is what I promised myself and any listeners. However, because I cannot stop myself, I've written an essay that I'll put up on my website for anyone who's interested. It's called, after the Alan Patton novel, Cry the Beloved Country. So that said, on to episode Seventeen, The Writing Journey. While being sequestered for a couple of months now, I've been spending more time writing and thinking about the process of writing. Whether a book, play, short story, essay, etc., the act of writing is often characterized as a journey, traveling from point A to point Z. In that regard, life itself is a journey. It's a useful allegory, and in both cases, we can choose the metaphor that transports us from beginning to end. Right now, where our travel is restricted because of the virus, I'm rambling around in my imagination, sometimes on foot and other times with other possibilities. Considering the elemental transport metaphor, that is to say, walking, I'm reminded of the ancient Chinese proverb, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. This is attributed to either of two authors somewhere between the 6th and 4th century B.C. Regardless of how it starts, it would be awfully nice to know how far and how long this walk is going to be. I think Moses would endorse that sentiment. When Moses began his peripatetic exodus from Egypt, seven to eight hundred years earlier than this proverb, he might have had second thoughts if he'd known it would take 40 years. But his biblical Wandering the Desert is one of the earliest walking tales, if not exactly an endorsement of the art of trekking. And of course, there is the iconic essay by Thoreau on walking, in which he advises, you must walk like a camel, which is said to be the only beast which ruminates when walking. Have you seen camels walk? Graceful they're not, but they're definitely fit for purpose. However, Henry David Camels are not the only species of ruminants. That category also includes cows. And what are these lofty thoughts of camelids and bovines? A more recent example of this theme is a particularly poignant fact-based movie, Rabbit-Proof Fence. It's about aboriginal girls escaping a labor camp in 1931 Australia by walking over a thousand miles. It's a difficult journey, which most important journeys are. And when it's over, not all the girls have survived. This is a common refrain of not everyone surviving the journey. It heightens the drama in the other on-foot escape films, such as the futuristic Maze Runner movies, and it's obligatory in war movies, such as the recent film 1917. Generally speaking, the hero doesn't die, or dies only after she or he achieves the objective. I recently saw a t-shirt that reads, I don't care who dies in the movie, as long as the dog survives. I think a lot of producers take that to heart. Another frequent mode of transport in literature is by animals. The famous example is Don Quixote on his horse, Rocinante. But my favorite in this category is the 1914 prose poem, Platero and I, by the Andalusian author Juan Ramon Jimenez, about the narrator's travels with his burro, Burrows by their nature, will generate a different type of a story than a horse, or camel, for that matter. An important element of the pilgrimage story, as in these examples, is not only the travelers' destinations. It's about the people they meet and the adventures and obstacles they have along the way. The best journeys involve a learning experience, self-reflection, and transformation by the end. Some writers have taken the transport idea quite mechanically. For example, John Steinbeck wrote The Wayward Bus, using that vehicle to tell stories of the passengers as they travel California's back roads. Although much has been written journalistically about segregation on buses in America in the 1950s, especially about Rosa Parks, I can't think of many novels that take place solely on a bus. Perhaps you can. There is, of course, Tom Wolfe's 1958 nonfiction book, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, about writer Ken Kesey and his band of merry pranksters who traveled across the United States in a vibrantly painted school bus, which gave rise to the classic phrase, you're either on the bus or off the bus. But sometimes you're on the bus and off the bus, as in the movie The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, which follows a trio a drag queen performer, a cross-dresser, and a transgendered woman driving across remote areas of Australia in a tour bus named Priscilla. If you watch it, you'll laugh, you'll cry, but you'll also notice all the elements of the archetypal journey story. A recurrent metaphor for on-the-road tradition is travel by car. There are many examples of books, fiction and non-fiction, about car trips, including Faulkner's symbolic novel, As I Lay Dying, and lots of movies. Think of the film Thelma and Louise. As for other on-the-road vehicles, there's the classic 1952 memoir by Che Guevara, The Motorcycle Diaries, about his travels in South America, and the notable Negro Motorist Green Book, a travel guide for African Americans during the 1960s segregated Jim Crow era, recently made into the 2018 Oscar-winning movie Green Book. There are many more car trip films that you can think of, I'm sure, but don't forget Zombieland, which in its offbeat way follows the time-honored formulas for on-the-road movies. Full disclosure, I'm a fan of the Walking Dead TV series, which is to me a continuing journey for both the living and, shall we say, non-living. Journeys by airplane appear both in books as well as books made into movies. For example, Stephen King's 1995 The Langoliers. Some of the notable airplane movies are set during World War II, and some during World War I, especially with aerial dogfights. There are lots and lots of film scripts in this genre, from comedy, such as a 1980 movie Airplane, to thrillers like Air Force One and disaster movies, all the way to Flight of the Living Dead, with a plot perfectly encapsulated by the title. And I already did full disclosure about this subject. Another travel-by-air category includes hot-air balloons, as in the recent movie The Aeronauts, and the classic Around the World in 80 Days, booked film. Not strictly by airplanes, there's also travel aboard Spaceship, in science fiction films such as Passengers, set in 2343, and Gravity, which received numerous Academy Award nominations. Both of these qualify as journeys. The television series Star Trek, but not the movie Star Wars, follows the same on-the-road principles, with each episode having its own complete journey within the greater journey of exploration on board the spaceship. And let us not forget train journeys, from mysteries such as Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express book and movie, and Hitchcock's The Lady Vanishes, to the animated film for children The Polar Express, the subway thriller The Taking of Pelham 123, and the futuristic graphic novel-turned-movie-turned-television-series-Snowpiercer. There are innumerable stories set aboard trains. By now, you're likely thinking of all sorts of examples in each of these groups, probably some I've overlooked, which brings me to my final category, The Water journey. Some early example in literature includes Dante's Descent Through the Circles of Hell. His epic poem takes place both on water and land preceded by Ulysses' journeys by boat and land in the Odyssey, both depicting transformation through adversity. A narrative nonfiction book, Mayflower by Nathaniel Philbrick, is about the coming to America and follows the pilgrimage by water tradition, of which Leon Uris' historical novel Exodus is another example. As for boats, perhaps the most famous shipboard novel is Melville's Moby Dick, and possibly the most famous shipboard film is the 1997 disaster romance story of Titanic. There are so very many of these movies, but I must say that my all-time favorite is the arduous voyage of the rickety, steam-powered vessel the African Queen, which film script by John Huston and James Agee was adapted in 1951 from the C.S. Forrester 1935 novel of the same name. If you haven't seen this movie with Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn, you're missing a marvelous treat. In the subcategory of water journeys, there have been many film comedies set in submarines, but by far the greatest number of these have to do with war, for example, the boat, and even the Cold War, such as the hunt for Red October. I'm sure you've noted by now that most of my examples are written and filmed in English. I know there is a vast body of fiction, films, and nonfiction in other languages. I can only plead a deficit of my knowledge of these, and I depend on you to augment my choices. In American literature, the most enduring water journey besides Ernest Hemingway's The Old Man and the Sea and Melville's Moby Dick may be Mark Twain's The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. The novel about a 13-year-old white boy and a runaway slave, Jim, escaping on a raft on the Mississippi River is a product of its time over a 100 years ago. It needs to be read with a caution that we should have a very different view of race today. We also should have a very different view of killing whales. Hopefully, we evolve. I personally like to envision the process of writing as a train journey. At the onset of the story, the train is at point A. Some characters get on, and the train takes off. There is passing scenery. All the senses are engaged. The writers may or may not interact, but there is anticipation and tension. The unique feature of the journey is that the engineer, me, may or may not know the destination of point Z. Some or none of the riders may or may not know the destination as well. There are depots along the way where the train stops. New characters may get on board. Others may get off. There may also be obstacles on the track as the train continues. It may stop to be refueled. My train, you see, is not electric, and sometimes refueling may take a long time. My steam train is coal-fired and needs fire to keep it running. The train may take many detours, it rarely travels in a straight line, and it may end at a location totally unexpected. That is the essence of a first draft. As you may easily realize, the conceit of the external journey is most compelling when it reflects the internal journey of change or discovery, mental, spiritual, physical, or otherwise, of one or more of the passengers and possibly the engineer and a subsequent transformation. On-the-road stories are generally going towards some goal, quest, an appointment, an assignment or rescue, or away from something, escape, transition, evolution, or from one place to another, or one state of mind to another. The best ones employ both. In that vein, I chose to write a novel in the the On-the-Road-in-a-Car tradition about a very young woman abandoned by her husband, impoverished, and evicted by foreclosure as she travels and matures. It is titled, "Strummin' the Banjo Moon. When we first meet Juana Mae Del Rio Lottery, she's living with her four-year-old daughter, Dell in their car in the Lands of New Jersey. She works at a minimum wage, part-time job to pay for essentials and raise a supermarket dumpster for the rest. At 19, she is a survivor and, above all, a protective and loving mother. Through the course of the book, they travel back to their home in Louisiana, having adventures, as in many picturesque stories, and meeting unique people along the way. I envisioned Juana as a sort of Huck Finn, adventuring in a car on the highway as opposed to a raft on the river. What started me on this story was something I saw in passing when my husband and I stopped at a Colorado gas station one day on our way to the Denver airport, pulling away from the pump was a middle-aged woman with two children in the front seat and the back seat piled to the roof with their belongings. It didn't look like they were moving or on vacation. It looked to me as though the car was their home, or so I imagined it. The idea haunted me, and years later I began to ride Strum in the Banjo Moon. The story, told in the first person, begins here. Chapter 1 Thursday, June 25th. My daughter and I are living in our car in the Pine Barrens of South Jersey. We've been here for almost three months, but now we're hiding from the government. My plan was to wait until I saved $500 by the end of summer and then drive home to Louisiana, but Miss Pendleton is suspicious, so we're leaving tomorrow. Miss Pendleton seemed friendly at first. When we sat in her office, she pointed to two stacks of files on either side of her desk and said, I'm here to help you, dear. That's my job. I guess I wanted to believe it. She looked like the mom in the Brady Bunch, but older, with short brown hair, passion pink lipstick, and nails to match. Bad breath, though. So let's begin with your full name. She turned the sheets of her yellow lined pad to a blank page and picked up her pink ballpoint pen. Juana May Del Rio Lottery, I said, and spelled it out. She wrote it down, and I added... Lottery is my husband's name, Calvin Lottery. Miss Pendleton wrote that down, too, and glanced at the form I filled out for her secretary. And Calvin left, I see. Do you know where he is? No, ma'am. He hasn't contacted you or your daughter in almost six months. She looked at the form. Since January? No, ma'am. I mean, yes, he hasn't. And that's how we got here. After Cal took off on us, our house was foreclosed on, and Dell and I were evicted. On April 1st, we moved into our 1963 Buick Electra and drove straight into the woods. But two weeks ago, I made a big mistake. I should never have gone to the welfare office to ask about food stamps, because that's when they made out a folder on us. That means we came to their attention. And what is your daughter's name? Dell May Lottery. That's a pretty name. How old are you, Dell? Dell lowered her head in silence, so I answered Four and three quarters, she'll be five on august fifteenth. What Miss Pendleton wrote on her pad was more than just Dell's age, but I couldn't read it upside down. I thought we'd be home by September, so I never enrolled her in school and as soon as I said Dell's age, I knew the social service would be on us like a hound on hare. We'll plan to send her to River Regional for the fall term," she said. "Are you looking forward to that, Dell?" When Dell didn't answer, Miss Pendleton turned to me with her eyebrows raised. "She's just a little shy," I explained. "Which she isn't. She's weary of strangers, and she has a way of making her brown eyes wide and innocent behind her glasses while she sachets her vanilla hair. She lisps a little, which, for some reason, makes people pat her on the head." But I tell her she can't get by on looks and lisps forever. I was a little shy at your age, too, Dell, Miss Pendleton said, but I really liked school once I got there. It's fun to learn new things. Tell me, Dell, do you know your numbers? Dell nodded. And your alphabet? Dell nodded again. Then she asked Dell if she ate all her meals, and if she was happy, and if she felt safe. Del kept nodding, but I felt a chill creep up my neck like a spider. You wrote on the form, Hijuana, that your house was foreclosed. How did that happen? I started twisting my hair. It wasn't actually my house. It was my husband's mother's house. After she died, it turned out they never had a clear title and never paid taxes, so the bank took it. I'm sorry to hear that. Where are you and Dell staying now? Uh, with my husband's aunt and Field. By then, I'd figured out that if Miss Pendleton knew where we're really living, she'd take my daughter away. I could sense Dale looking at me, but I didn't dare look back. What is the address there? I don't actually know. I stopped twisting my hair and tried to sound convincing. I just go by landmarks when I drive. What about the phone number? I never had to call her for anything, but I'll ask. Miss Pendleton leaned back resting her elbow on the desk and holding her pen in the air. Uh, What is your husband's aunt's name? You do know that, don't you? Uh, Yes, ma'am. Mary O'Brien. I knew five O'Briens in school. George, John, Kathleen, and two Marys. There had to be some around here. Miss or Mrs.? Uh, Mrs., but she's a widow. She wrote it down. Can you bring me that information to me tomorrow, Juana? Both the address and the phone number. I lied through and through because there is no aunt and I've never been to Freehold. I really didn't want to fib, but if I didn't, I knew I might lose Dell, and I lied about my age, too. I told her I was 21, even though I'm only 19, but I'll be 20 next week on July 4th. Since Miss Pendleton doesn't know I was born in Louisiana, I hoped it would be too hard to check. I did have to tell the truth about where I'm working, though, at the Bayside fish market, or she'd probably put me into foster care, too. What is your weekly salary for the market, Juana? When I told her, she took a hand calculator from behind her stack of folders and did a multiplication. You've definitely qualified for food stamps on your income, but I'll need to find out what your husband's aunt is providing in order to make a recommendation. She smiled. I'm glad you and Dell came in today. I know we'll be able to help you. But don't forget, I still need that other information so we can process you. Yes, ma'am. When she was through, I couldn't get away fast enough. I took Del's hand and held it very tight until we got outside. When we were both in the car, Del said, That wasn't true. We don't live with anybody. No, honey, but we would if we could. I kissed her on the forehead. Thanks for not saying anything. Won't Miss Pendleton find out? Don't worry, sweetheart. We're never going to see her again. If Mama were here, she'd scold me from dawn to dusk and sideways. She always said, you have to be self-reliant in this doggy-dog world. That's for damn sure. From this point on in the story, Juana is motivated both to escape Miss Pendleton and to travel home. And on the way, Juana tries to educate her daughter in the world by telling Dell stories that have a moral. Juana doesn't know any fairy tales, so she tells Dell about real people but mythologized into fables. And this is one of Juana's stories, Our Last Turtle. There once was an elderly couple named Mr. and Mrs. Sunshine. Is that their real name, Mama? Absolutely. And they lived in a lonely house at the end of a long road. Is this Mr. and Mrs. Turetti? No, Dale. Now, no more questions until the end. She scrunches up her face, but I need her to listen and to think about this. Mr. Sunshine used to drive out the long, long road to get his newspaper one. One autumn morning, he saw a young man in his 20s walking along the road with a big canvas bag on his back and a little terrier dog at his side. The young man had long, stringy blond hair and looked very thin in his army fatigues, but his dog looked fit and fine. The boy, as Mr. Sunshine thought of him, continually bobbed up and down, picking up discarded soda and beer cans and stuffing them in his canvas bag to turn in for the five-cent deposits. Mr. Sunshine told Mrs. Sunshine about the boy and every day She would ask if he'd seen him and the dog, and every single morning he would tell her he saw the boy walking with his head down, his faithful companion trotting alongside. They wondered where he'd come from, being that there were very few houses around, and the Sunshines knew all their neighbors. Then one November morning came the first sign of winter with sleet and winds. Mr. Sunshine almost didn't go out for his newspaper that day, but he had to see whether the boy would be there. So off he drove, and sure enough, there was the boy with a canvas bag on his back. But instead of the dog walking beside him, the boy had picked up the dog and held him inside his light jacket. Well, that was just too much for Mr. Sunshine. He stopped his car and asked if he could give the boy a ride. The boy and his dog got into the car, and Mr. Sunshine drove them to the store to return his cans. On the way back, he invited the boy home for a hot lunch. Mrs. Sunshine's heart melted when she saw the boy. He was so dirty and smelly, with blotchy skin and his hair in a mess. She immediately pulled out some clothes that had belonged to her son, grown up now and married, living in Japan, so they hardly saw him, and told the boy, Billy, to take a shower and change while she washed his clothes in the washing machine. She observed that he was a very quiet young man and seemed to do everything very slowly, unlike his dog who scampered and played and jumped right up into her arms. While Mr. Sunshine finished cooking the roast chicken and mashed potatoes, Mr. Sunshine gave the little dog a bath. Billy, it turned out, lived in the woods. He had come back from Vietnam in June and couldn't get a job, so he had to live in his mother's house. But he didn't get along with his stepfather. His own father had died long ago, so he left the house with no place to go. He knew, he said, how to live in the woods just fine. But Mr. and Mrs. Sunshine said he mustn't live in the woods during the winter, or he and his little dog Scooter might die. They had a spare room, and he was welcome to stay with them and do little chores around the house to earn his keep. Billy talked it over with Scooter, and they decided to stay. However, Billy's little chores never did come out quite right. He attempted to fix the toilet, but forgot he left his undershirt on top and it got flushed and stuck in the pipe. He tried to do the dishes, but wound up breaking at least one glass every time. One day he surprised Mr. and Mrs. Sunshine by simonizing their car, but he didn't wipe it off quite enough, and the simon eyes dried in streaks all over Mr. Sunshine's pride and joy. And there was a time he painted the living room and tripped over the paint can-well, you can see what I mean. Dale nods, strictly obeying my silence rule. Nonetheless, with the passing months, Mr. and Mrs. Sunshine's affection for Billy and Scooter grew, and they found themselves quite happy to have him with them, no matter what the damage. But soon the winter passed and the snow disappeared and they began to hear the red-winged blackbirds and see the green shoots push up through the ground and the willows become like yellow streamers. They saw a change in Billy. He would sit at the dinner table and slowly raise his head as if sniffing the air. His eyes got a faraway look. Then one morning in April, Mr. and Mrs. Sunshine came down to breakfast only to meet Billy dressed in his old fatigues with his empty canvas bag. It was time to go, he told them. He was most grateful for their kindness, but he had to be outdoors again. They understood, didn't they? They said they did understand, although they would miss him, and maybe he would come back again in the autumn. He didn't say yes or no, but shook Mr. Sunshine's hand and gave Mrs. Sunshine a hug and left. Mr. and Mrs. Sunshine did not let Billy see how disappointed and sad they were. Even though he made a few mistakes, he was a dear boy, and he deserved a better life than he had. They watched him walk down the road out of sight, looking just like a turtle with that canvas bag on his back. Would they ever see him again, Billy and Scooter? Where is Scooter? Mr. Sunshine suddenly asked. Mrs. Sunshine said she didn't know, so they both searched through the house room by room until finally Mr. Sunshine found the little dog in the bathroom. At first he thought that Billy had forgotten him, and he picked up Scooter in his arms and hurried to the door with Mrs. Sunshine right behind him. But Billy was nowhere in sight. It was Mrs. Sunshine who saw the note stuck in Scooter's collar. She took and unfolded it and read, You need Scooter. He loves you. Mrs. Sunshine cried at the great gift Billy had given them, and Mr. Sunshine cried a little too because they loved Scooter as much as he loved them, and it was true they did need him more than Billy. I pause and look at Dell, who looks very solemn. And that is how Joanna teaches her daughter about compassion and generosity. But this story is about Juana's coming of age as we see her evolve into a self-reliant woman during her travels. She ultimately will continue her life-affirming adventures with her beagle, Finster, whom she calls, you might have guessed it, Finn. The book was nominated by the publisher for a National Book Award, It didn't win. I don't think it was even shortlisted. But the characters continue to have a special place in my heart. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll return for next month's podcast, The Thing About Dogs. If you like this podcast, please download and subscribe. It's free, and you'll find it on your favorite directories such as Apple, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, and more. To learn more about me and my books, go to JoyceWalsh.com.